Our New Testament reading comes from 2 Corinthians 5. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading comes from the gospel of Matthew. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the gospel of the Lord. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for the joy of Easter and the great occasion that we have in this season to celebrate the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, from the dead. Uh, and we do come mindful that as we come into this space, as we sit with your scriptures, and as we come to you in worship, that it's been another week marked by death and grief. It's been another week of violence, a mass shooting, a police shooting. Uh, it's been another week of communities experiencing grief and fear. And so as we come 
into this space, even singing our alleluias, we also come with prayers of how long, O Lord. We're mindful this week of the particular tragedy uh, to Dante Wright, and we lift up his family and the black community. We're mindful of those in the Sikh community who are grieving this week as well and are afraid in their own way. And so on their behalf, we offer this cry of how long, and we ask that you would bring healing and justice to those who are suffering. And we ask that you would meet us in our time of this um, worship service and of this sermon, that you would impress upon our hearts and our minds just what it means that Christ is risen in the midst of this world. So we ask your blessing upon us now and ask you to enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Amen. So it is the Easter season. And we are continuing to celebrate this resurrection of Jesus um, and that beautiful mystery and contemplating it and what all it may mean and does mean uh, for our lives. Um, and we're continuing this sermon series to the Easter season that we're calling the Resurrection Church. And so if you're new to this community, if this is uh, if one of your first times with us, we're really glad you're here. Quick word of orientation, we are a newly merged church of other churches in the city that have come together uh, for the sake of mission. And we've chosen this name Resurrection Philadelphia for our newly merged community. And so what we're doing this Easter season, as we are not only, we're not only celebrating Jesus's resurrection, but we're contemplating the significance of resurrection. And we're considering what it might look like for us as a church to grow up more and more into our new name of resurrection. And so last week, we began the series by reflecting on what resurrection has to do with the church's message. Today, we're going to turn our attention to resurrection and the church's mission. And of course, message and mission are inextricably wedded to each other, right? The message serves the mission, the mission enacts the message. And so last week, as we began to consider what resurrection means for the message of the church, uh, we started off by simply acknowledging that most basically, the resurrection message of the church is not like religious ideas, or it's not a set of principles or an ethical vision at its core. What it is at its core, most basically is news. It's good news that God has actually done something remarkable to Jesus in raising him from the dead. And that that act of new creation, that act of resurrection is not some random, one-off, bizarre, bewildering event, but that it is actually God's new normal erupting in our world for the first time. God's inauguration of new creation that will endure forever. And so as we thought about that and sat with that and explored that some, we considered some of, those, some of the features of that good news um, and that the message is centered on Jesus himself, right? That it comes from him and that it's about him. This is the message that Jesus has given to the church to steward and share. We saw that it's a message of profound grace and hope that God acts with life-giving favor on those who don't deserve it, on those who are the lowest and the least, even the dead. We saw that it's a message that's for everyone, that's for all the nations of the earth, all the peoples, all the families of the earth. We saw that it's a message that transforms the way we actually relate to and read our Bibles. 
reading it as a whole story toward Jesus himself as he taught his disciples to do. And at the end of the day, we saw that that resurrection message is a message of love, that God has so embraced humanity in love, in Christ, that Jesus has died and risen again for us, that we are freed to live into the world and into our relationships now, not as those trying to establish or defend ourselves, but simply to love because God has first loved us. And just as the church's resurrection message isn't first and foremost a religious one about beliefs or rules or ethics or any of that stuff, but first and foremost is about proclaiming this news of what God has done and is doing in Jesus, today what I hope we'll see is that the mission, the church's resurrection mission, similarly, isn't first and foremost about spreading religion or like extending the footprint of Christendom or trying to change people's minds to think the way we think or trying to win some culture war or fill in the blank of whatever expression of Christian mission uh, that comes to mind. No, the resurrection mission of the church is most basically participating with God in what God is doing in the world. Participating with God in what God has done in Jesus and what God is doing in Jesus. It's about participating with Jesus in this new normal that God has established in the resurrection of Christ and sending the Spirit. So another way we could say this is like, so what does resurrection have to do with the church's mission? We could say, in a sense, resurrection is the church's mission. Which is to say at the outset that the church's mission is not something that's ours to control or accomplish or to make effective because resurrection is not something we have the power to do. But it's something that God gives us to receive and to lean into and to share with others. And that's the mission that the risen Jesus has given to his church. And so resurrection, we're gonna see it shapes actually everything about the church's mission. It shapes the goal. What is the goal? The goal is new creation, right? The goal is seeking that world of God where God is making all things new. Seeking that for ourselves, seeking to share that with others. It shapes the means of the mission, right? It's, it's going to be participation in Christ. It's gonna be entrusting ourselves to God and embracing the way of Jesus, which we see as the way of the cross, a humble way of self-sacrificial love for the good of others. And it's gonna be a way in which we are trusting God for the results, not trying to coerce or control them ourselves. It's gonna shape the dynamic of the mission, that the same spirit that animated Jesus's life, that led him and empowered him to do the work of the Messiah, that same spirit is the one he's poured out in his risen state that he's poured out on us, the spirit of the, of the risen Christ that lives in the church today and empowers us for the mission. And resurrection is also going to shape the missionary community. Who are the people doing the mission? Well, it's this new humanity of God that the New Testament writers speak of, this new humanity gathered around Jesus, filled with the spirit of Jesus, which is going to be a people from all nations, for all nations from all people groups, for all people groups. 
In our gospel reading from Matthew, this famous Great Commission text, as it's often called, we see this risen Jesus sending his disciples out into the world on mission to be disciples of Jesus on a mission, to make disciples of Jesus. And in the reading from 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul, we see him describing this mission that God has given him, the apostle, and then by extension, the whole church, this mission to be ambassadors for Christ on a mission of reconciliation. And what we see in both of these passages that are talking about the mission and the ministry of the church We see that the mission is not first and foremost the church's mission, but it is first and foremost Jesus's, God's. It's something God is doing in and through Christ and something God calls us to join him in doing. In Matthew, we see Jesus saying, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. So therefore, go and do this work of making disciples. And as you do it, I'll be with you. And then in Paul's letter, he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. So the church's mission simply put is, God's mission in the world. Or as I've heard some put it, it's not so much that the church has a mission as much as it is that God's mission in the world has a church. And the resurrection of Jesus, how it plays into this whole story and shapes the mission is that the resurrection of Jesus is this climactic moment of God's missionary activity in the world that ushers in a new era of God's activity and transforms the way that human beings like us become beneficiaries of God's activity and become participants in God's activity. As the Apostle Paul says, anyone in Christ, behold, new creation, a new thing God has done, a new way of being involved in our lives, a new way for us to be involved in God's life. In short, Jesus in his life and death and resurrection, what he does is he brings to completion the story of Israel, the story that's told throughout the whole of the Old Testament of our Bibles. And he brings to fulfillment the story of God's faithfulness to bring restoration to humanity and to all of creation through this one nation of Israel, which is the people descended from Abraham. If you read back into the earliest books of the Bible, uh, there's this moment in the book of Genesis where we see God looking upon a world that is ravaged by human, uh, human against human violence, where humanity has turned away from God, humans have turned against one another, and the world is broken. It's a mess. And God looks upon his broken world and he singles out one person, this guy, Abram. And he says, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to set you apart and I'm going to bless you so that your family will be a blessing to all the families of the world. 
And the story unfolds from there. And the story that unfolds is Abraham's family really becomes the nation of Israel. And the whole story of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, is one that follows this family through its complicated ups and downs, its twists and turns of this story of living into their identity and vocation of this blessed to be a blessing. A renewed humanity in the midst of a broken world, called to reorder its life together around God, to draw its life from God, and then to share that life for the good of others, and to order its own life and its own pursuits around God's own vision for what a flourishing world looks like which in the scriptures is this vision called shalom. It's a rich Hebrew word. We've used it frequently over, the, over our time together as a church, but it's this concept that means, it's often translated as peace, but it means so much more than peace. It means wholeness and justice and life and goodness. It means an interrelatedness of love where everything is right. Everything is set right and life thrives. It's the vision of God's original creation that he looked upon and said, it is good. And it is the aspirational vision that God calls his people to, as he says, order your lives around me, order your lives around my ways. Let's constitute a state in the midst of this broken world that bears witness to the way of God in the midst of a world that turns away from God and against one another. It was an aspirational vision that Israel sometimes lived into with greater consistency, sometimes with lesser consistency. But ultimately, that roller coaster ride of the story of Israel meets its end in Jesus. The story would have been ultimately a tragedy of human failure, except that God looked upon his world once again, and he looked upon his people once again, and he said, I'm going to do a new thing. And God writes himself into the story in the person of Jesus to take up in his own self the human vocation of loving God and loving neighbor. And as Jesus does that, as an Israelite, he fulfills that story, he fulfills that calling. And his own life and mission lives out in the world God's vision for that new humanity. Now that's a dangerous calling and it gets him killed. And that's how the story goes, right? Because Jesus living in this way of loving God and loving neighbor, of this humble way that's not based on power, but it's based on self-sacrifice and love and humility and trusting God for all things, that way was a direct threat to the political and religious establishment of the day. And so it got him killed. But as the story unfolds, God raised Jesus from the dead. He overrides the verdict of death. And he even overrides the power of the institutions that rely on the threat of death for propping themselves up. And so what God does in the resurrection of Jesus is he brings to this glorious end, this story that began with this calling of Abraham out of nowhere. And he brings it to this glorious fulfillment in Jesus. And he raises him from the dead and then sends out that same spirit that was in Jesus on all flesh, on all the church, and ushers in a whole new day where all the families of the earth are blessed directly through him. Which is why nationalism of any form is so utterly incompatible with Jesus. Because Jesus comes into the nation of Israel that God had set up. He fulfills that story 
And then he dies and rises as Israel's Messiah. And as Israel's Messiah dies and rises, the great unfolding story is that it's no longer just for Israel or through Israel, but it's through Jesus for all the nations of the earth. That is the good news. And so the missionary community of Jesus is going to be, as we see in the scriptures, gathered from all the peoples and for the benefit of all the peoples of the earth. This is what it means that the resurrection of Jesus transforms the mission. And so Jesus does this work. He fulfills the story of Israel. He fulfills the calling and hope. He dies and he rises. He sends the spirit and then he commissions his people to join him in what Dallas Willard so gloriously calls the divine conspiracy. It's one of my favorite turns of phrase or favorite titles, the divine conspiracy. Something God is up to that he now invites his people to join him in, in this glorious and mysterious way. It's a free and creative endeavor in union and communion with Christ that seeks the end of God's shalom by the means of the way of Jesus. And as the apostle Paul begins to unpack what that looks like for us here in 2 Corinthians, he describes this involvement in the divine conspiracy as the ministry of reconciliation. And he says, as he describes this ministry of reconciliation, that because God has done something so profound in Jesus, of reconciling to himself people who don't deserve to be reconciled, as he's reconciled to himself irreconcilable enemies, that there's something scandalously gracious and merciful that God has done in Jesus that now becomes the paradigm for the way that we, as participants with Jesus in the great divine conspiracy in the world, become bearers of what Miroslav Volf refers to as gratuitous forgiveness. We become bearers of this scandalous mercy and love, the embrace of God that covers the rifts, that repairs the ruptures, and that seeks to bring together all the peoples of the earth, across all the divisions. Elsewhere in the scriptures, the apostle Paul describes the work that Jesus has done as a tearing down of the dividing walls. That the dividing wall that separates humanity from God and the dividing wall that separates humans from humans, that in Jesus, God has torn those down to make out of this fractured humanity one new humanity in Christ. Behold, I'm making all things new, says the Lord. And the apostle Paul describing his own calling and by extension, the calling of the church describes this as a ministry of reconciliation. And it is a radical and scandalous work of reconciliation. And I think any of us living in our divided times feel the deep need for reconciliation. And if you're like me, you're probably looking in a sort of bewildered way at the horizon or at where we are. And you're wondering how do we move forward like as a society? How do we move forward as a church? How do we move forward as a state? Because we're so divided, we're so fractured. And we, we retreat into our echo chambers where we hear voices that sound like ours and we don't hear very many voices that sound different. And then we begin to experience voices that sound different as crazy or dangerous. 
and some are dangerous and some are crazy. But we begin to experience all disagreement as danger and lose our imagination for what it might be like to be united around something other than whatever commonality we've conjured for ourselves in this moment. Into that fray comes Jesus, sent by God as the great reconciler to die, to fall on that sword, all of them, all of our swords that we are always pulling on each other, to fall on them, to absorb the blow, to absorb our hate, to absorb our animosity, to absorb our small-mindedness, to die under the weight of our tragic human story and to rise from it into a glorious new one. And he says, come with me, this is better. Join me in my conspiracy of working good and healing and justice and mercy in the midst of all the strife and all the death. It's a ministry of reconciliation that Paul says we take up as ambassadors for that kingdom of Jesus that will endure for all time. I wanna flag the word reconciliation because it's actually a problematic one. It's a deeply important one that we can't lose, but it's also a fraught word because it's so easily abused. And as we talk about the scandalous reconciliation of that gratuitous forgiveness and this unbelievable a mission of forgiveness and mercy and healing that God calls us into in Jesus that is a startlingly gracious endeavor. It's important that we name a couple of ways I think that reconciliation gets used and abused. And it's slippery because reconciliation can be used to describe a destination just as much as it can be used as a journey to get there. Reconciliation can be used to describe a state of being, having been reconciled. And it can also be used to describe a process that's pursuing reconciliation. And here's the challenge, because the state of being, right? As we think about the state of being reconciled or reviewing reconciliation as a destination, that is a peaceable state. But the process of reconciliation, the actual work of repairing what is ruptured is a painful process. If you've ever worked through a significant relational rift, you know the pain that is involved in the work of reconciliation. And one of the ways that reconciliation gets abused and hijacked by another kind of agenda is that it begins to appeal, some can use it, appealing to the destination, the peaceable destination, not as an inspiration to engage the process of getting there, but as like a cheap and superficial way to avoid the process of reconciliation altogether. And I wanna flag two particular contexts in which I see this and we see this happening because they're both delicate and they're both problematic. One is in relationships, especially but not limited to marriage relationships, and especially in contexts where those marriages have been affected by abuse or another kind of betrayal. And in a, it is altogether too common that one partner might appeal to reconciliation 
not as a reason to do the hard work of coming back together and repenting of the ways in which we've hurt one another, but actually might appeal to reconciliation, the destination, as a quick and easy way to opt out of the process of doing the real work of reconciliation. And so one of the tragic effects of that kind of abuse of the term is that there are abused spouses who believe that what God is calling them to do is suffer silently and become harmed over and over again and diminished in their personhood in the name of reconciliation. And I don't want to overspeak and, and try to extend my, uh, my uh, ground level application for you. God knows what God is calling you to do as you're working things out. But please don't hear me say that this scandalously gracious invitation to join God in the, in the divine conspiracy of seeking the reconciliation of all things means for you that you stay in the way of harm and danger. That's a misapplication of this term. And it's, it happens so often that I feel the need to flag it here because I just don't want you to hear me saying that. And if that is you, if you're in a space where you feel like you're being harmed, please get help. Reach out to a friend, to us. This is a, this is a problem that's become worse in the time of the pandemic. Domestic violence is on a rise. And if that is a situation you're dealing with, please get help. Do not suffer in silence. The second area I would like to flag is in the area of racial reconciliation. Because there's a reason that the word reconciliation is getting dropped more and more from those conversations. And it's precisely because people will use it not as a way to engage the work of pursuing justice, but as, as a way to get out of the conversation. Reconciliation becomes not an inspiring vision that leads us into the deep work of repentance and repair and dismantling structures of injustice, but it becomes a way to ask, can we make the uncomfortable conversation stop right away? I'm entitled to more comfort than you're granting me. That happens all the time. And I think those two ways of using and abusing this term reconciliation have made it so problematic that we've often, we become tempted to drop the term altogether and many do, which is why many conversations around racial justice used to talk about racial reconciliation and now don't anymore. Because obviously rec reconciliation that doesn't involve justice is not actually reconciliation at all, right? But of course the work of justice must bring about the real life-giving reconciliation, the wholeness, the peace, the renewal of all things, not just a new evil in exchange for another. Reconciliation is a glorious and important word, but because we use it and abuse it uh, in these ways, it gets cheapened. So let's reclaim it. Let's, let's reclaim it as conspirators with God in this good work that God is doing that begins with what God has done toward us and Jesus as the apostle Paul describes it here. That because God has so sought us out in love, because God has so fully embraced you and me across all of the ruptures, across all of our not being fully in it or our half-heartedness or our cold-heartedness, all the ways we don't deserve the forgiveness, haven't even asked for it because God has sought us out so persistently, so lovingly and so graciously to reconcile us 
in Christ. Let's do the deep work. Let's not be afraid to discover those things about ourselves that need to be done away with. To look at the, the rifts, the ruptures that need to be repaired and to ask, what would it look like to do the work? You can't make somebody else do the work, but you can always say yes to God as you are following him into the work, into our relationships, into our neighborhoods, into our families, to be bearers of this kind of mercy, forgiveness, and grace. And that'll look differently in different contexts. And often the end of the story in our local expressions and our relationships, it doesn't live up to the vision of new creation, but we still move with Jesus into the places of our lives, seeking his vision of new creation by the means of his death and resurrection. And as Paul unpacks what that means in his own life, as he thinks about reorienting his own life around this ministry of reconciliation that Christ has given to him, he talks about a new form of boasting that it brings forth in him. He's writing to the church in Corinth. That's a place that's a very cosmopolitan city, sort of an, a place where people would go uh, and, and become up and comers, where you might attach yourself to a patron as a way to uh, become upwardly mobile in society. And so self-promotion and seeking status were the way that people in Corinth, which is sort of like a New York of the Roman Empire, if you will, Status was the social capital of the day and self-promotion was the game. And as Paul is writing into this place, he's talking about the way that others in the community are boasting and promoting themselves, which is creating division in the church. And Paul is saying, look, I'm not playing that game, but I have a new kind of boasting, not self-promotion, right? Not based on outward appearance, which is to draw the attention toward these false qualifications, but rather to come boasting only in Christ, to be promoting him and what God is doing in the world. Paul is putting his finger on a problem in the church in Corinth that really gets at the heart of our own pervasive human problem, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we privilege our own agendas over against the agendas of others. And so we become competitors, not companions in this world. Paul is saying that the, the ministry of reconciliation that Christ has called them into and that he's enacting in their midst is a, is a ministry that subverts the self-promoting agenda. It's a ministry that, that takes away the competitive spirit where we're against one another and draws us into a companionship where we're members of one another. And so the boasting that Paul's commending is a countercultural boasting that's aimed at a different goal, the goal of Christ's kingdom. And then he talks about a different compelling force, right? That he's compelled by the love of Christ, a different drive, that this love for humanity that God has lived out in Christ where one has died for all has unlocked a whole new set of possibilities and has inspired Paul to live into the world as an imitator of Jesus. Margaret Thrall writes that Paul indicates now that its purpose is to bring to an end man's self-centered existence. She means humanity. She's writing like 50 years ago. 
a Corinthian problem, but also the essence of the human problem. And then Paul says that this also involves a new kind of knowledge, a different point of view. He says, I used to view Jesus from a human perspective, but now I don't do that anymore. Saying, I used, to, I used to think about Jesus in terms of like his earthly credentials, his resume, his profile, his pedigree. And when I did that, I'm paraphrasing Paul here, stepping into his shoes. When I did that, I didn't follow him. I wrote him off as a problem. But the story goes that Paul encountered the risen Christ and began to see things in an entirely different way. He met the glorified Jesus, And when he said that when I came to know Christ in that way, everything changed. Paul began to know Christ, not on his earthly credentials, but as this new creation. And in doing so, Paul discovered in Jesus a whole new way of being human in the world. And this ministry of reconciliation, he says, it's rooted in God's reconciling us to himself in Christ. God does something for us in Jesus. Why? Well, so that we may participate with Jesus in what God is doing in the world. If you get into the end of our passage here in 2 Corinthians, where it starts talking about all this stuff about Jesus, you know, Christ being made sin for us, um, you know, for, his, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or where it talks about how one, one died for all. Theologians love to unpack that and split hairs over exactly what mechanism was being enacted there when God did something great and mysterious in Jesus. And, you know, people get, get sideways on all kinds of stuff. Like, is it more transactional, like a payment for a debt? Or is it more relational, like solidarity? What happened in Jesus happens in us. And I think there's probably a good, you know, both and, all yes and amen kind of answer to that stuff. But regardless of whatever you get when you look into the black box and try to pull back the curtain on a divine mystery, implied in verse 18 is what happens once we experience it. That when we are reconciled to God in Christ, we're brought in to the ministry of reconciliation that the intended result is that we become participants in God's mission in the world and in the way of Jesus. That we become disciples who are making disciples. That we become ambassadors of this new creation that has erupted in the resurrection of Jesus in the midst of a broken world that is ravaged by death and injustice and evil and all kinds of other things that tear us apart. But God is making all things new. And lastly, I would just say this, that I believe that there's a really powerful preposition that we can adopt that helps us wrap our minds around how resurrection transforms the mission of the church and gives us an imagination for what it means to do this as Resurrection Philadelphia. And it's the preposition with. Sky Jathani has a beautiful little book that a number of us read together a couple years ago, and the book is called With. And in it, he begins to explore how prepositions function in our imagination for the way we relate to God and take up the life of being a follower or minister in Jesus's kingdom. And he talks about life with God in contrast to life under God and life over God and life from God and life for God. 
that what God calls us into is not simply life under God. He explores what it looks like when we imagine our lives that way. To live under God is to foreground the rules, the traditions, the habits, right? The things that we do, the principles, all of that. And there are many good ones. That's not the dominant dynamic. But right, when we imagine ourselves as under God, that shapes the way we live, that shapes the way we minister to others. Life over God is essentially like life without God, right? Life that's moved beyond needing God, life that lives without a dependency upon God, whether we're thinking about it that way, as like, yeah, been there, done that, moved on, or not. Whether it's simply our version of Christianity flowing out of our own gut reaction or emotional reasoning based on wherever we are at any given point in time, that we're not dependent upon God's leading, we're just figuring it out ourselves. Not life under God, not life over God. Also not just simply life from God, as if God were there to simply like be the vending machine, right? That dispenses good stuff to us. That we do this because it works for us. Not simply that, or, and then not simply life for God. Not that we're here to be champions on the mission where like somehow what we're doing is this offering for God that he'll bless and reward and be delighted in. Of course we do things for God. And of course, we're even told we present ourselves as a holy and living sacrifice. This is a vision of our life with God, but more fundamentally, more fundamentally, life with God. That the very, very core of what God is doing in the world and in our lives is relationship, not a transaction, not some system of obedience or disobedience or dependence or independence, of getting or giving, but relationship. That God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, who created a world of love and created a humanity that he loves, has so loved you and so desired you for himself that he's allowed this whole story of his mission to unfold that he's come himself to complete it in Jesus. And now he enlists us as his divine conspirators to join him in this joyful, creative, life-giving work of enjoying God and enjoying our neighbors and sowing seeds of life and living a life of love and embracing our neighbors and sharing the goodness that we have come to know in Christ. And the deep reconciliation that God has wrought in us. This is how resurrection transforms the mission of the church. And my prayer for us as Resurrection Philadelphia is that we would grow up in delight and diligence as conspirators with God in this mission of blessing all the peoples of the earth through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and life in the spirit that he's given us. May God's grace be upon us that it may be so with us. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks and praise for the glorious good news of your son, Jesus. We give you thanks for your persistent love that has sought us from the very beginning. We were formed in your love. And you have held us all the days of our lives. 
You've watched over us and you've kept us through all of our ups and downs, through all of our nearness and all of our distance, through all of our faithfulness and all of our faithlessness. You've watched over us and you've kept us by your grace and by your mercy. And even as this world has come unhinged in so many ways and has fallen to decay and death and violence and despair and injustice and hatred and all of the various ways that we turn against one another and turn away from you. Our God, you have been faithful to see us through. You've been faithful to seek us out. You've sent your son Jesus to live and to die and to rise. You've put your spirit in us and given us new life in Christ and you have unleashed us in your world to be ambassadors of new creation and ministers of reconciliation, of disciples who walk with you. And you have attached your persistent promise, lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. God, would you help us to believe that and to live that and to be the hands and feet of Jesus, the embrace of Jesus in the places where you send us? And would you make this church, Resurrection Philadelphia, a church that delights in conspiring with you for the common good of this city and the goodness of our world. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.